A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. I didn't play for individual lives. I played to win championships. That's what it was all about for me. Steals leader, free throw leader, scoring leader, all the other great things. Those are like the candles, the icing, cherries, all the great things that you put on a cake, right? Well, take all of those things and put them on a plate. How do they look? There's something missing, isn't there? They don't look anywhere near as good unless you have the cake. The championship is the cake. Fortunately for me, I have the cake and have all those other cool things to put on top of it. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting first bumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, he made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now... Introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 46. Thanks for joining me. My website, inallairness.com. Just add a forward slash and the episode number to view show notes. In this episode, I am excited to welcome one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history, Rick Barry. We discuss a wide array of topics covering Rick's incredible Hall of Fame career. Now, just in terms of the recording, from time to time, you may hear a flickering or buzzing sound on Rick's side of the audio. We worked out that it was the internal fan on his PC. Thankfully, the audio was recorded on two tracks, so my side is fine, but you may notice a slight issue on Rick's end of the call. I did my best to minimize its effect when I edited the episode. Hopefully, it's not too noticeable. If you enjoy the podcast, and I hope that you do, I'd love you to tell your Hoops Obsessed friends all about it. Now... Onto the show. My guest today is one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history. He is a Hall of Famer, NBA Rookie of the Year, an ABA champion, NBA champion, and NBA Finals MVP. He was an NCAA All-American, a 12-time All-Star, eight of which were in the NBA, and also won All-Star MVP honors. He also racked up six All-NBA and four All-ABA first-team honors. We might have to cut the interview short if I was to list every award he's received. Rick Barry, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure, Adam. And how are things down under? Things are going very well down under, thank you. And just before we did start recording today, you made mention that you honeymooned over here. I was there actually, this is in the early 90s. Great people, very friendly people. It was a great time. Your Super Bowl was going on basically for the championship of the rugby and we went over and invited some people's home and it was a good time. Yeah, that's great to hear, and I believe you you did travel around a bit into Australia. You went as far as into Central Australia as well, near Ayers Rock too. 
to climb Mara's Rock, and you know, in the United States, they never would allow you to clear. When people are climbing, these women have got high heel shoes on, they got black shoes, <laughs> fell off and got killed. I mean, they'd have lawsuits. It'd be a joke what would be happening over here. They'd never let people do what they let them do over there. <laughs> yeah, well, I think now they actually have the law against actually climbing it now. So you went over at a time where it actually still was able to be climbed, but uh, it's changed a little bit these days. Ah, okay. Well, I got lucky that I got to climb up there, rode the camels at uh, Alice Springs, and went out to the Barrier Reef, which is just absolutely amazing. So, yeah, it's, we had a great time. Great to hear. Now, you were born in New Jersey, and you attended high school there. My research suggests that baseball was actually your first sporting love, and then a hero of yours is the reason why you chose to wear the number 24. Sure. Uh, Willie Mays was the guy that came in as a rookie. My father had taught me playing baseball how to catch fly balls with the famous basket catch that Willie Mays had down by the waist. And uh, and so when this guy came up and all of a sudden he's catching balls like my dad showed me, I said, well, this is the guy that I want to follow. And I picked a pretty good one, actually. And so I tell people it's pretty amazing what happens in life sometimes. Here I have a boyhood hero. I wore number 24 because of him. And later in life, I became friends with him, was invited to his 70th birthday party, asked to speak on the day as with all of the Hall of Fame baseball people that were up there. So it was, it's a pretty amazing story. It is, and also, uh, coincidentally, uh, just two days ago, you celebrated your birthday as well, so happy belated birthday to yourself. Well, thank you. Hopefully, I'll have a lot more. My goal in life now is to be 100 years old and go uh, fly fishing in Alaska. That's my goal. That's my new passion in life is fly fishing. I'd like to touch on that briefly towards the end of the conversation. Now, also, when I was doing a bit of research, I discovered that when you were playing basketball as a high school senior, you actually contemplated giving up the game due in large part to your then high school coach. Do you mind just talking a bit more about that? Yeah, well, I had a coach that was kind of crazy, actually. And I don't think most people respond well to being yelled at and screamed at. Uh, I was very hard on myself. I knew the game exceptionally well. I was well taught by my dad, who was a semi-pro player and a coach. And so fundamentally, I was very, very sound. And I knew every time if I made a mistake. And every time I made a mistake, I was very, very upset with myself. So the last thing I needed was a coach to be yelling and screaming and hollering at me. And it got to the point where... I just said, you know what, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. I don't want to deal with it. And my father and my brother had to convince me that I needed to go back because I had a chance to get a college scholarship and don't let this destroy what the potential I have is to go on with my career. And so I finished out and I went back. And uh, that coach I heard later on had gone to one of the New Jersey institutions of higher learning in college and was involved with being a men or something of that nature. And supposedly he was up on the top of a faculty building threatening to jump off at one time. So it just shows you that uh, he was a little on the uh, far side a little bit. Yeah, never good at all. Now, um, I found it incredible at the time that when I read this that one of the game's greatest careers almost never was. So I'm glad that you were definitely talked out of that and continue playing the game. Now, you mentioned your dad there for a moment. It's, it's widely reported that your dad was the one that suggested that you shoot your free throws underhanded to give you greater results. But a question that I actually haven't heard asked all that often was, how good of a player was your dad and how did his shooting percentages compare to yours? Because you're almost a, a 90% career free throw shooter. Yeah, well, I, I actually think I'm better than 90, although it came out at 90 statistically. But when I made my change with the technique, when I refined what my dad taught me in the last six years, I shot over 92. In my last two years, I was 94.7 and 93-something. So if I had been shooting that way when I was shooting 10-12, I think I could have put up some really serious numbers that would have been very difficult for anybody to beat. And it's the only area of the game you can be selfish and help your team. So I, I, I definitely take, still take pride in what I was able to accomplish at the free throw line. 
But my dad, I, I never saw any statistics for him, but my dad was, was a very good player on the semi-pro level. He was an outstanding coach. I think he, he coached some teams called the Pioneer Rec Tigers into some championships. So uh, he was a nice, very nice player, really good athlete, was a great fast-pitch softball player. Uh, and I got a lot of, I got my athleticism, obviously, from my father's side. I always joke about my mom, God rest her soul, that my mom would have trouble chewing gum and walking at the same time. She wasn't very athletic. He was, she was a wonderful person. Oh, that's good to hear as well. Now, um, on the court itself, you were known for being very passionate and a driven player. Where do you uh, originally foster that desire to win from? Did that come from your father's side, or where can you trace that back to? It was definitely my father. My father was a perfectionist. Uh, I'm a perfectionist. Uh, As I got a little bit older, I still strive for perfection, but I also am a realist that you're never going to be perfect but you always still try to be perfect. And I learned not to be quite as hard on myself when I didn't achieve perfection. And that's something that comes with maturity. And it's really interesting when I was in my 20s and you know, people would say, you know, oh, he's immature. And what do you talk about immature? As you get a little bit older, you realize how immature you are when you're younger. Yeah, that's true. Now, you attended the University of Miami and you graduated with some remarkable averages, almost 30 points a game and over 16 rebounds a game. Your senior season was phenomenal. You led the nation in scoring at over 37 a game, but unfortunately there were some recruiting violations that meant that Miami couldn't take place in the NCAA tourney. What did you learn during that time in college that ultimately helped propel you towards a fantastic pro career? Well, first of all, let me clarify something so people understand totally. Mm -hmm. Back then, it wasn't like we missed out going to the NCAA tournament. The NIT was a bigger tournament back then. Everybody wanted to go to the NIT tournament. The NCAA tournament was nothing like it is today. Everybody has this vision of this behemoth that's out there. That, that, you know, Now they keep increasing the size of it, and it's become just a phenomenon. Back in those days, it really was prestigious to go to play in the NIT tournament. And it still was disappointing because we had a tremendous senior year as a team to be deprived of the opportunity to go and play in a postseason tournament with the record we had in the team that we had was really sad. And it was very, very unfortunate because it was bogus as far as getting this recruiting violation. It was so ridiculous. There's no way, but the university president didn't go and fight it. Had he fought it, they never would have won it. We would have been able to play in our in the tournament. And so that's a very disappointing part of my career to have to end it with a game against Florida State at home that I happened to win on a tip-in, but uh, it was very sad because we had a good team. I think we could have caused some damage in that tournament and would have been interesting to see what we would have done. And we might have gone to the NCAA tournament because it was starting to get a little bit more recognition. And it really got a lot of recognition in 65, for those who were historians, because that was when they still had the, the preliminary the game for the third-place game. And if I'm not... If I'm, my memory serves me correctly, Bill Bradley had 50-some-odd points in that game and had a spectacular performance. So uh, it would have been fun to have played because I, I, I was hoping to get to play against Bill Bradley. Didn't do it. They came down to play in our Christmas tournament, but we never did get matched up, and I would have liked to have played against them. Yeah, definitely. Now, I'm glad you made that distinction there about the NIT and the NCAA tournament because I had no idea about that, to be honest. And in most of the articles and things I've found about you online, it, it just states that you missed out on the NCAA tournament, but um, clearly at that time, the NIT was a much bigger and more important goal for most college players, I'm guessing then. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, that that's where you wanted to be able to go and play basketball. The mecca of basketball was Madison Square Garden. And it was a very prestigious event, and obviously now it's flip-flopped, and the NCAA tournament is the big one, and the NIT is the secondary one. Okay, right. So then in 1965, the San Francisco Warriors selected you with the second overall pick in the NBA draft. 
and yourself included, your draft featured 10 future All-Stars, so one of the greatest of all time as well. Uh, you had guys like Billy Cunningham, Gail Goodrich, um, Bob Love, John McLaughlin, Bill Bradley, as you mentioned, uh, from your college days, and then you also had the Van Arsdale brothers. What are your draft day memories, Rick? Well, uh, I remember I was actually back in New Jersey doing something for my high school, and Bob Ferrick, I guess the general manager of the Warriors, and when they made the announcement that I was being drafted, I remember they offered me $12,500. That's what my offer was for the first, second pick in the draft, 12500 and I had to make the team. It wasn't guaranteed. Things have changed a little bit. I told people it was very simple. They just forgot three zero. That's all. <laughs> okay, so even at that stage, then you had to actually earn your spot. It wasn't just a guaranteed. Right. I, I didn't have a guaranteed contract. I didn't negotiate it up to fifteen. I didn't have a. We didn't have agents and people back in those days. I got it to fifteen, and I actually got myself a three thousand dollars signing bonus, which is a pretty good deal. When I went into the league in sixty-five, there were only, I think, at that time, four guys. I believe we're only making $100,000. And my goal was to become a $100,000 player, which I was able to achieve. You know, as I joked with my mom, God rest his soul, I said, yeah, Mom, why couldn't you have waited about 10 years before you had me? She said, ah, shut up. You're lucky I had you in the first place. And I said, yeah, but Mom, if you had waited, I would have made so much money. I would have built a house for you wherever you wanted. I would have sent you on cruises. I would have spoiled your rotten. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm glad you got a good sense of humor there as well, which is, uh, which is great. Now, I-, I actually read with interest that the then Warriors owner, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce his surname properly, Franklin, how do you say his surname? Here's how he always said, you always remember, stubborn as a mule, muley. I've got you. Okay, thank you. I won't forget that now. So the then Warriors owner, Franklin Muley, initially offered to or wanted to trade you to the Lakers in exchange for Gail Goodrich, which was surprising when I read that. How widely known was that possible deal at the time? And, and do you ever actually think about the what-ifs had that deal gone ahead? You know, I, I I had heard something about that, too. I never really knew about it back in those days, that that even was a possibility that they were thinking about. You know, it would have been interesting to go down and play with Jerry West and play with my basketball hero, Elgin Baylor. I mean, that was my basketball hero. Uh, I think I probably would have helped the Lakers win a lot more championships. <laughs> Well, yeah, it definitely would have been a great addition to the team, to say the absolute least. And even just when I, I'll just move forward a moment to the 1967 All NBA First Team, and I'll read out a couple of these names. It's just an incredible lineup. It's yourself, Algin Baylor, Wilt Chamberlain, Jerry West, and Oscar Robinson, and Bill Russell was second team. So that's probably one of the greatest if not the greatest All NBA lineup you'll ever see. So it would have been really interesting had you actually moved to LA, but... Um, the deal didn't go ahead, of course, and then you obviously uh, went to the Warriors, but there's some quite interesting scenarios and, and what-ifs there. Yeah, well, I actually have that one plaque that was laminated from Sporting News for that first team, and it's it's very unusual, uh, and I, I feel very honored to have accomplished it. For a rookie to come in and make the first team all-pro team is very, very unusual. Uh, the reason I was able to do that is because my college coach, Bruce Hale, who was a former pro player, Mm-hmm. really helped me get prepared for the NBA. We would work and we would drill on things and he told me what I could expect. You know, and It really was it was like having four years of minor league training to get ready to play in the professional league the way that we played the game. Do you realize that when I was in college in, in my senior year, without the three-point shot, we averaged almost 100 points a game. Staggering, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We had so many shooters and scorers 
so many guys from Indiana. I mean, it's like there was an underground railroad from Indiana down at the University of Miami that Bruce Hale had going, our coach. And, you know, Junior G, Rick Jones, uh, Wayne Beckner, all of these guys, John Dampier, the greatest long-distance jump shooter I ever saw in my life. Unfortunately, he got hurt in my senior year early in the season. These guys were unbelievable. I mean, the guards thought they were in range when they crossed half court. They all could shoot the ball. If we had the three-point shot, it would have been sick how many points we would have scored. <laughs> it's incredible that you were yeah, such a, um, a high-scoring team, as you mentioned, without the, the advent of the three-point line at that time. And you did say as well that the incredible achievement of being All-NBA first team as a rookie, you were the rookie of the year, obviously all-rookie selection. And then you helped the San Francisco Warriors, as they were then known, to more than double their win total from the previous year. And you also played in the NBA All-Star Game. So just a remarkable rookie season in the league. Yeah, I had, a, I had also a great distinction in my first All-Star Game. It was in Cincinnati. I fouled out of that game. Adrian Smith, it was not a star player who got the, uh, the MVP of the All-Star Game in Cincinnati, but I fouled out of that particular game. And it was so funny because I remember... One of the fouls I got called call for, they, they they called me for an offensive foul and saying, well, you you know, you, you used your arm to ward off Chamberlain. I said, are you freaking joking with me? I said, I could be on the ground with two hands and I couldn't ward Chamberlain off. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Because uh, obviously, Wilt's one of the most incredible physical specimens that the game's ever known. And to this day, has just got some remarkable achievements and individual statistics that will likely never be matched again. You got that right. You know, people keep telling me, oh, yeah, yeah, who's the greatest center? And they keep throwing out these names and they're saying Russell. Well, you know, Bill Russell is the greatest center in the history of the game for helping a team achieve championships. But from the standpoint of picking a player with the skills required to play the center position on both ends of the court, there isn't anyone that comes close to what Will Chamberlain accomplished. I mean, people don't seem to understand 50 freaking points a game for an entire NBA season. Are you kidding me? He got the man averaged twenty two and a half rebounds for his career. It, it's just it's mind numbing to me to think that somebody could score fifty points average in a game for eighty some odd games. Play every well, actually, I think Wolf in some seasons actually averaged more than forty eight minutes a game. He played every minute of every game. That's true. It's unbelievable. The guy was amazing. He was absolutely truly amazing. Great, amazing athlete. I don't know if people realize he wore. I think he ran a forty eight second four forty. He high jumped well over seven feet. The guy was incredible. Yep, just a, an incredible specimen, and the likes of which we'll probably never see again. Now, you mentioned there about how Wilt was such a great scorer in one of the particular seasons, averaging over 50 a game. Uh, in your second season, in 1967, you led the Warriors to the NBA Finals before eventually losing out to Wilt Chamberlain and his Philadelphia 76ers. It was four games to two. That season, you had your best points per game average of over 35 a game. And I've just had a look at the stats quickly before we chatted today and looked at the box scores for that season. You had six games, I think it was six games of 50 or more, and then you had over 20 games scoring 40 or more. So that is remarkable, and that just puts into perspective how freakish the numbers were that Wilt put up in the season that, that uh, you just talked about as well. Yeah, well, that means I would have to average 15 more points a game for an entire season. Some guys never averaged 15 in their career for a freaking season. <laughs> I would have had to do that on top of my 35. That's why I'm saying how insane it is. Yeah, it really is incredible when you put it into that sort of perspective. So in those 1967 finals, you averaged 40.8 points a game, and then you also had some great rebounding numbers, almost nine a game, and then over three assists also. You set a finals scoring record. That stood for more than 25 years before a guy named Michael Jordan would best that, albeit just, in 1993. 
uh, at 41 points a game. See, he played overtime games. That's true. That's true. There was a, actually there was a um, triple overtime game as well. I think in game three, so that probably helped. In game four, I think he had 55, which would have matched your output in game three of the 67 finals. I'm thinking. Yeah, well, overtime games, you know, that's a lot of extra minutes and points being scored and all. But, you know, a lot of that stuff, it's so funny because every once in a while, I, you know, I'd be reading USA Today in the sports page and, you know, in the years later, and all of a sudden I see this little thing and they have these little squibs in there about things that happen in sports and whatever, and I'm reading some of this stuff, and it's stuff I, I, I read there, and I said, well, I didn't know that. I mean, I learned a lot more stuff about things that I did because I didn't pay any attention to those kinds of things. I just played. I went out and played as hard as I could play every time I put my uniform on. I can honestly say I never played. There's one quarter of one game that I played in my entire professional career that I mentally was not in the game. There was things happening in my life that I allowed to affect me. Normally, I can put things on the back burner and not allow them to have a negative effect on my performance. And so I take great pride in that because that's what my father instilled in me. Son, everything you do in life, you have to take pride in what you're doing and do the best that you can possibly do. And so that's what I do. That's what I think. If I have anything about me, that anybody could come up and say anything negative about me, I find it very, I mean, you can find whatever you want to find, but you could never say that I didn't show up to play. Yeah, you can even tell now just the uh, determination that you have talking about it and looking back on it. Do you mind if I ask, and feel free not to advise, but what is the game or the quarter in mind that you're actually referring to there? I don't remember what game it was, but it was just one of the regular season games and something happened. I I went to the bench and I was so mad at myself because I knew that I mentally wasn't into the game that I was allowing something outside of the game to influence what I was doing on the court and and I rectified that and never let it happen again. Gotcha, so yeah, understood. Now, you mentioned how that since your career had finished, your playing career that is, that you read little bits and pieces that related back to your career and how you're not always up to what was happening at the time, you just focus on the game itself. I came across that story about uh, Franklin Muley and the possible trade with Gail Goodrich that was through the Sports Illustrated uh, vault online so that's where I found that story yeah I, as I say there's a bunch of things that have popped up there and you know that I Rick Berry did this he did that I, I, I don't worry I didn't worry about those kinds of things the only thing I worried about is just playing as hard as I could possibly play as well as I could play trying to be a consistent player taking great pride in you know being a great free throw shooter and, and just attacking and being an aggressive player that's probably the one thing about my boys that I kept joke I joke with them all the time and I have another one playing as a fresh head of redshirt freshman year this year in college Canyon and I said boys that offensive aggressive gene is floating around in there someplace you got to find and get it to the surface you guys are just <laughs> players too unselfish they're so unselfish to a fault at times and you know I just really believe that they could have done so much more because they really were very talented and my young guy's talented as well and I'm hoping that you know that he goes out and has an opportunity to to show what he's capable of doing in the next three years yeah definitely and so you mentioned your boys there talking about Scooter uh, Brent John and Drew and then uh, Canyon you've just mentioned as well and I believe he still has adopted the underhand free throw with some very good results to this stage is he still continuing with that yeah, he's, he made the decision to change when he was a junior before his junior year in high school, but he did it like two weeks before the season. I said, well, that's great, son. I said, it wouldn't have been good, though, if you had decided at the start of the summer so you could have actually practiced it a little bit. 
And so his, his big thing is that he's still not where he needs to be, but he was up around 75, but he had a tough, oh man, he had so many balls in and out that just got robbed early in the year. He got off to a horrendous start, and then he recovered from that, and he was shooting them exceptionally well at the end of the season. And I, I, I would be surprised if he doesn't get into the 80s and eventually wind up being a 90% shooter, depending on how long he plays, because he's got the technique down. And it's just one of those things that you have to do repetitions. And the, I said, son, the more you shoot, the easier this is going to get for you. Yep, so it just all becomes routine, and that's that's the important thing. Now, harking back to your days in the NBA, the 1967 All-Star Game was held in San Francisco, and you were the MVP of the game, if I'm not mistaken. You scored almost 40 points, and I think that Red Auerbach was actually ejected in an All-Star Game, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. Do you mind just talking a bit more about that particular game and what you even remember about that, Rick? Well, I remember that it probably was maybe one of the greatest uh, accumulation of, of great players. If you look at the rosters from both teams, the East and the West, there are a very significant number of top 50 NBA players who played in that game. I mean, on my team alone, I mean, just, just look at what we had. And, you know, Nate Thurman and Jerry West and Dave DeBusher and you had Will Chamberlain on the other side and Oscar Robertson and, and Jerry Lucas and Will, uh, Bill Russell and Hal Greer. I mean, this. It's just unbelievable when you, when you think about it. And I think in that game, the thing, and I remember Red getting thrown out, which I think is the only time it's ever happened in an All-Star game. Yeah. But also in that game, the thing that I felt very, very adamant about, and I still believe it to this day, that there should always be two awards in All-Star games, a most outstanding player and a most valuable player. In that game, the most valuable player for the Western team was Nate Thurman and the job that he did to negate that amazing front line of, listen to them, Chamberlain, Russell, Lucas. That was their front starting lineup. <laughs> we had, I think it was DeBusher, myself, and Nate. I mean, we had two little guys, and they had three big guys, and, and Nate just did such a great job, and I felt that he should have been the most valuable player. I would have gotten the most outstanding player award because of my 38 points in the way that I played, and I, I still believe to this day that you could have those two awards in most all-star games yeah well that's a great point there i hadn't actually thought of it in that way but you certainly can have a uh, a clear most outstanding player in the game and then a most valuable so that yeah, that's a really good point there so and you mentioned nate thurman who was a teammate of yours with san francisco and then later uh, golden state when you were renamed do you mind even just talking about the relationship that you had with him and he had a, a wonderful career himself that uh, sometimes gets overlooked when people talk about the era of the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually, because you had Russell Chamberlain, Bellamy, some of the greatest ever played in that era. And so Nate was sort of an afterthought. And if you were to ask most of the players who played back in those times, who was one of the toughest guys you ever had to play against, I guarantee you Nate Thurman's name is going to come up many, many times. Everybody respected him a great deal. He's a tremendous guy, a good friend. In fact, I, he just called me the other day for my birthday, and, and uh, unfortunately, he's suffered. He's got some eye issues with his, with his sight and all, but otherwise, he's kept himself in great shape, and he's worked at my fantasy basketball camps when I had them for a number of years, and, and we still keep in touch, and he's just a great person that I'm proud to call him a friend, and I'm thrilled that I was fortunate enough to have him as a teammate unfortunately only for a few years I didn't he wound up being traded off to Chicago and of course we wound up beating Chicago with him on that team some of the years that you would have been teammates were when you headed to the ABA now I won't touch on it too much because I'm sure you've been asked to almost within an inch of your life about this over and over but in the late 1960s you became the first professional athlete to challenge what was then known as the reserve clause 
and it really effectively meant that a team could still hold the rights to a player and their services for a period of time even after the contract had ended. Uh, you opted to leave the NBA and, and play for the Oakland Oaks in the ABA's inaugural season. Do you mind just talking about the frustrations of having to sit out that 1968 season when you're effectively in the prime of your career uh, instead of being on court as a star recruit in the ABA? Well, it was a difficult decision for me. Looking back on it, I gave up one of the prime years of my life. I just got done having the best year, one of the best years of my career and as far as points go and things of that nature. And we came within two plays because two pick and roll plays involving Nate Thurman and myself with Will Chamberlain all were the difference. If they had gone our way instead of their way, we would have won in six games instead of them. That's how close it was. Right. And, but the, the reason was is that basketball had always been fun for me. And it wasn't a job. Unfortunately, and again, God, he just died recently, and he was really a nice man, but as a coach, I did not enjoy playing for Bill Sharman. Bill Sharman is the guy that started the morning shoot-arounds, which have turned into a, a, an ordeal now. It's like a major practice, which I don't understand at all why they do this. I still don't to this day. I think it's a waste of energy, a waste of time. It's great for guys who haven't, aren't playing a lot, but for the guys that are playing a lot of minutes, the last thing you need to do is expend more energy in the morning of the game you're going to play, maybe when you, especially if you played a game the night before. Hmm. So anyway, it's uh, I didn't have fun. I mean, come on, we came within two plays of winning the championship. I won, I was the MVP of the All Star game. I led the league in scoring. I might have led it in free throw shoot. I don't even know. But the bottom line was, it wasn't fun for me. And so for that reason, when the opportunity came for me to go and then play for who? The coach of the other team was going to be my former college coach, who at the time was my father-in-law. Yeah, yeah. So it was a very appealing thing for me to want to go and do. However. What people don't understand is I didn't. I gave the Warriors every single chance to keep me because I did feel an obligation to them because Franklin had been so good to me. And I said, give me your best offer, hmm. which they did not do. They made a calculation. They screwed up is what they did. They didn't give me their best offer because I told Pat Moon, who was one of the owners of the other team, I'm go- I owe it to the Warriors to go back to them. Give me your best offer. I'm going to go back to the Warriors. I will not tell them what you offered me, and I'm going to give them a chance to give me an offer. If their offer is anything close to what you're offering me, I'm going to stay. And the Warriors didn't do that. And yet I was branded as some money-hungry guy, no sense of value. Or, you know, I mean, it was such a crock. They screwed up because I gave them every chance to allow me to stay. When I walked, I still remember this day. When I walked out of that meeting with Franklin Muley telling him I was leaving, I was crying. It was very difficult for me to have to do what I did. But everything in life happens for a reason. And had it not been for me making that move, I would not be where I am today. I would not have the amazing wife that I have. I would not have the incredible son that I have today. I would not have the friends that I have. And my life would have been different. So you accept what happens in life. You should never sit around and wallow in self-pity and feel sorry for yourself. Something happens to yourself that's sad and, and disturbing. Cry. Get mad for a few minutes. Get over it and move on. Yeah, you put it into a really good perspective there when you talk about it. And we're talking about a decision that was made over 40 years ago. So um, obviously you've been probably asked about that in almost every interview request you've had since that time, I'm sure. Uh, just interestingly, in that 1968 season, you were doing games on the radio. You were commentating the games for Oakland via radio, I believe, for most of that season. I was doing TV work too, and I did TV college television stuff as well. And and it, it really, you know, helped me get a little bit more experience in that area. I also did uh, radio work, doing a radio show as well. And so I got a lot of experience. Because when I was in college, I took enough courses to probably have a major. 
I, and I couldn't have a minor because in the business school they didn't allow you to have a minor, but I took so many courses in radio, TV, and film work that I, I prepared myself for that part of, of my life, and so I basically prepared myself for two careers, basketball and broadcasting. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, you played four seasons in the ABA. You were with the Oakland Oaks, who then became the Washington Capitals when they were sold off and relocated, and then you were traded to the New York Nets. You were named an All-Star and All-ABA performer in each of those four seasons. In your first ABA season as a player, your Oakland Oaks were the ABA champions. It's difficult to put into a single answer, but how would you categorize your ABA career and experiences, Rick? Well, I played well. Unfortunately, I got hurt, and so that's the real negative to it. A guy named Ken Wilburn came in in Comac Arena out in Long Island, made a play. I was up going to lay the ball in the basket, had no business even trying to make a play on me. We got our legs tangled, and my cartilage got torn. Mm. And so that was the start of, of my having to go through a problem where I had another cartilage injury the next season on the other side, and the same with me. So I wound up playing the majority of my career with a knee that was maybe 75% a leg of working the way it should have worked. Uh, I feel fortunate to have been able to have done that, but I played I played with pain. I, I was always in pain afterwards. It was difficult, but you do what you have to do. And after my last year with the Rockets in 1980, I went in and had an arthroscopic surgery done, an exploratory thing, because I thought they thought I had a little piece of something floating around. Well, I had more than just a little piece. Dr. Bert Zarens from up, at, uh, up in Boston showed me the operation on tape, and he showed me what he took out of my knee. He said, Rick, it was, it was like the size of a silver dollar, but maybe twice as thick wedged in the back of my knee. He said, how did you play with this? I said, well, I didn't know it was in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. After he took it out, it was like, it was like having a new leg, actually, a new knee. Because for the first time in over 10 years, I didn't have pain. I mean, I could actually sit down, have my knee bent if I sat in an airline seat or a movie theater or something of that nature. I didn't have pain. I didn't wake up in the middle of the night all the time because of the pain in my knee. And it was was like being reborn. And unfortunately, that year, to show you what happened in the NBA and how things have changed, Mm -hmm. they cut the rosters from 12 to 11 to save money. Had it not been for that, I probably would have wound up playing for the Boston Celtics or the Los Angeles Lakers. Oh, wow. Okay, because you've just preempted my next question. As soon as you said that you felt a lot better after that surgery, I was going to say, did you entertain continuing your career or at least making a comeback of any description? So that would have been fascinating had that taken place. Yeah, it would have been interesting. I would have played. I would have been there with Bird and Mikhail and those guys and, and uh, my old teammate Robert Parrish. Um, or I could have gone with the Lakers and Magic and those. And that happened to be the year that Magic went down. So I really could have been helpful to them. But uh, I probably would have chosen the Celtics. It would have been really cool to go ahead and play because of the history that they have. And, and, the, and the Lakers and the Lakers would have been another one. I mean, it would have been a really tough decision for me. But I, I think I might have gone with Boston, thinking I would have had a better chance of winning the championship in Boston, be a part of that legacy in the history of that uh, that great franchise. You know, it didn't happen. So uh, my career was over. I was done. And I did broadcasting work and did that for a number of years and wound up coaching in the minor leagues. That was an interesting experience. And uh, and just, you know, I am where I am today where I had a chance this year to watch my youngest son play and be living in the area where he was playing ball in the Charleston, South Carolina area where he plays at the College of Charleston. And that was a great fun for me. I just loved watching all my boys play. I didn't have the luxury of being able to watch the other ones play that often because I was busy working and trying to support a family. And this time it was a real joy for me. Unfortunately, he broke the pinky in the shooting hand and missed a month of the season and half of his conference uh, schedule. But uh, he still made the all-rookie team for this conference. And has, he's got a chance to be a really nice player. So I'm really excited about looking forward to going back there every year. 
something to look forward to as well to, to track his career too now that um, the other boys are now uh, finished their respective playing careers. I'd just like to hike back to 1975 for a moment. Your underdog Golden State Warriors, they won the NBA championship with a 4-0 sweep over the much highly favoured Washington Bullets. You were also the finals MVP. You led the league in steals that season and free throw percentage. You were second in scoring, an all-star and all-NBA first-team selection. So one of the great individual seasons ever. What are your thoughts on the season from a team and individual perspective, Rick? It's by far my fondest memory in basketball for me personally. Mm -hmm. It was a season where I was on a team that epitomized what a team is supposed to be, where everybody's egos are put in the closet. Everybody's main focus on is trying to do whatever they can do to help achieve the ultimate goal, which is to win a championship. It was just a remarkable accumulation of young men. Uh, we had two rookies who were very instrumental in our success. Jamal Wilkes, who was Keith Wilkes at the time from UCLA, who became the Rookie of the Year. Phil Smith, who just got better and better as the season progressed. We had no-name players that people have no idea who they are. George Johnson, Charles Dudley, Charles Johnson. Um, Frank Kendrick, who was there during the regular season, but he didn't make it to the finals with us because we picked up Bill Bridges, a veteran player who helped us mainly play against Chicago. Um, Derek Dickey. I mean, guys that people just, yeah, people have never even heard of these guys. Mm. But they were just great people, great teammates. And I had such an incredible season. Of course, Clifford Ray, who was traded for Nate Thurman, came to us, who I think was the hub. It wasn't me. Clifford was the hub. I was probably, you know, you know, add a lot of fuel to the engine and stuff, but Clifford was the guy. He's the guy that brought people together who had the right kind of attitude. And to this day, he and I are like brothers. We go on our fishing trips up to Alaska and always are in contact with one another. And it's really funny when we're out sometime. His son has actually turned into a pretty good basketball player, his son Everett. And we're out, and so people are there, and here's, you know, this big black guy, Clifford Ray, with his, you know, with his son, who's a black, young black man, and my son, who's a toehead blonde, right? <laughs> right, and and they're talking. We're talking, and the people are hearing Everett say, "Hey, Uncle Rick, what do you think you're doing?" And Canyon say, "Hey, Uncle Clifford." Right? <laughs> so it's it's just the way life should be. I wish everybody could you know be that way and put color aside and just evaluate people based upon who they are as people. Yeah, you couldn't put that any better for sure. Um, now you mentioned how you finished your last two seasons in the NBA playing for the Houston Rockets. I know that your teammate at one stage was Calvin Murphy, who is also renowned as a great free throw shooter. Uh, when you were practicing, did you ever sort of have any challenges where you tried to beat each other in making consecutive free throws or anything along those lines? Well, I, I love Murph. Uh, he's such a great guy. And, I, and probably the most talented team I was ever on with the Rocket team and probably the biggest misuse of talent by coaches that I've ever seen in my life when I played for the Rockets. I mean, <laughs> Moses Malone, top 50, Hall of Famer. Calvin Murphy, Hall of Famer. Rudy Tomjanovic, one of the, I mean, unbelievable. Mike Newell, another great, talented player. Mike Dunleavy led the league in three-point shooting one year, was told that he shouldn't be shooting threes because he's not a good shooter by one of the coaches. <laughs> I was not allowed to run the pick-and-roll play. I mean, it, it was astonishing, actually, to be honest with you, what happened. Dwight Jones was there as well. and It was it was very disheartening for me to, to do that. It actually shortened my career because everybody said I can't play anymore because I averaged 13 and 12 points a game. But I was I was not a focal point of the team. The focal point of the team was Moses at the center mm -hmm. and the shooting guard for Calvin and Mike Newland and the power forward for Rudy. So I was basically, a, you know, I was the point forward for whoever was a point forward. I think I was in the top 10 in assists. I'm 30 feet from the basket and I'm distributing to Murph and Newland and, and Moses and Rudy. 
and I, I shot the ball maybe 12 times a game, 13 or something. And you got to score, you got to shoot. So one, I, I tell people, I said, look, one game in the two years, Calvin was sick, and I got to play two guard. I took 25 shots in that game and scored 37 points. So I said, please, don't tell me I can't play. I just happen to have coaches who aren't letting me play. Yeah, you can clearly still score, and uh, when called upon, can definitely uh, answer the bell, no doubt. Now, I'd just like to quickly um, ask you about your enshrinement into the Basketball Hall of Fame. It was in 1987, and you were inducted alongside other greats, including Walt Frazier and the late Pete Maravich. It's perhaps a, a loaded question, but where would you rate your Hall of Fame induction within the overall career achievements that you've got there, Rick? Well, certainly I'm... I'm I'm grateful that I was chosen to be there. It's, it's certainly a very prestigious honor, but I didn't play for individual honors. I played to win championships. That's what it was all about for me. So as wonderful as that was, it's not as meaningful to me as having won the championship. The only ring I ever wear is my championship ring. And I have a ring for the top 50, a ring for the Hall of Fame and all, but I, I, I wear only my championship ring because that's the way I was brought up, that's the way I was taught the game was about, and here's how he put it, it's pretty easy to visualize. So I have my, steel, I led the steals leader, free throw leader, scoring leader, all the other great things, you know, all-star team, all that great stuff that I have, those are like the candles, the icing, the cherries, all the great things that you put on a cake, right? Mm -hmm. Well, take all of those things and put them on a plate. How do they look? There's something missing, isn't there? They don't look anywhere near as good unless you have the cake. The championship is the cake. <laughs> Fortunately for me, I have the cake and have all those other cool things to put on top of it. Oh, that's, that's perfectly said there. It puts into a great perspective. And um, I'd just like to know, following your retirement in 1980, I think it was, who's the player that you think most epitomizes what you were when you were on the court that you've seen in that time since, right through to 2014? If you could pick one person, who do you think it might be? Larry Bird. Okay. Yeah. Larry Bird would have been the guy. A lot of people said that, you know, that that would case. I think he was probably a better, he was a better shooter from outside, from distance and stuff than I was doing it. I think I was quicker than he was being able to get to the basket and stuff. But both of us showed up every night to play. Both of us understood the game, saw the floor, got the ball to people, played the game the way the game was meant to be played. And I always felt that it was an honor when people say that Bird reminds me of Barry, you know, and so I said that's, you know, that's a, that's a compliment as far as I'm concerned. It's a fantastic one. Um, you mentioned briefly how you were a coach in various associations, including the CBA. What do you make of your coaching tenure? And were you surprised that you didn't receive some more NBA-related opportunities or at least chances to prove yourself on the NBA level as a coach? Well, I was really quite surprised at how much I enjoyed coaching. And, and the reason being is that as a player, you have a responsibility to yourself. First and foremost, yeah. as a team captain, you now have a responsibility to be able to lead the team. And the only time in my entire career that I was captain of a team was the year we won the championship with Golden State. And so I took that very seriously. And then as a coach, it's a whole new dimension. Now you have the responsibility of everyone. Mm. So you have to lead and you have to earn the respect of the players. And it was a very interesting experience for me. And the one probably most meaningful thing was when I was with the Cedar Rapids Sharpshooters and the Global Basketball Association in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I had a group of young men who became like a second family. They were just great guys. They bought into my philosophy. And when we finally got it together, we were just killing people. I mean, killing people. And playing tough defense and just executing well offensively. And unfortunately, the league folded. And we had a press conference when the league had folded. And I went there to sit there, and the guys were all over there. I lost it. <laughs> I emotionally, I really lost it. 
and the guys are all coming up, putting their arms around me, doing stuff, which probably made it even worse. I mean, it was like I was losing a family. I mean, I had such great love for these guys, and it was such a rewarding experience for me. So it's something I'll never forget. I truly enjoyed it. And I was truly disappointed that not one team in the NBA, even my old team, ever gave me an opportunity to even interview for a coaching job. Mm. I really believe I could have done a really good job for some people because I was a teacher, and I would surround myself. See, I, I've always wondered how in the world does a team justify having the head coach hire all of his friends who never played the game at that level be player be the ones that are working with the players to help develop them to become better pro players it made no freaking sense to me zero i don't mind hire your buddy to go and scout hire your friend if he's great with defensive you know sets and things of that nature but to work individually with the players that's ludicrous absolutely ludicrous you need to have people who have been there who have done that and that's what i tried to do and i that's why clifford ray was the guy that i would hire to coach with me to work with the big guys i understand why they didn't want to give me the chance it's because i had the reputation of being a tough person to deal with and it's true that they never would have been able to control me at all because if you're going to hire me to coach the team, I was going to coach the team the way I felt the team should be coached. And I think I would have done a pretty good job of it if given that opportunity. I was even willing to go if they had given me a chance to say, look, forget a long-term contract. Give me a one-year deal. Hmm. You don't like what I'm doing? You're not going to get stuck with contracts like you've done in the past. Take give me one year. But I'm also reasonably intelligent because I had enough confidence in myself that I felt I would have done an outstanding job in that one year. And so now if they like to have me for the second year, now they're going to really have to pay me. Yeah. Now they're going to have to give me a long-term contract. Yeah, it's, it's very unusual, really. Look, given your career and all that you've achieved uh, individually and team-based success, Regardless of sort of personality types, you'd think, and you still see coach hires these days where it's an unusual decision. You think, okay, well, we'll see how it goes. But even just for a one-year term, you'd just think, why wouldn't a team have gone with one of the 50 greatest players of all time as the head man? It just doesn't make a lot of sense, to be honest. Well, especially with my team, the Warriors, for God's sake, who were struggling so badly. I mean, they're hiring. God, Dave Cowan's got a chance to coach there and, and Bob Lanier. I mean, what relationship do they have to the team? If nothing else... It would have created a lot of interest and excitement and curiosity on people's parts to find out what the heck was going to happen. It would have been great just from a PR standpoint. Yeah, that's 100% true there. Uh, just a couple more quick questions, if I may. Rick, you've been very generous with your time, and I'm, I really appreciate it. Um, a former guest of my podcast and now a friend of mine, Talani Goodson, he's the creator of the TV series Courtside Jones. I've definitely been a feature with Talani, yes. Yeah, he featured you as the lead-off guest on his excellent TV series, and you mentioned on that feature how your relationship with the opposition players uh, may have cost you the MVP award in your 1975 championship season. Now, the voting process at that stage is in stark contrast to what it is these days. Do you mind just talking a little bit about the MVP situation at that time with the voting? Well, Courtside Jones was fun. It's always fun to talk to the game. I love the game dearly. Still do. But that, yeah, not, not that it may have. It definitely cost me the MVP. <laughs> There's no question about it. With the players, the players let personalities get into it. Yeah, I didn't go out there to make friends when I played. And Clifford Ray, my buddy, said, Hey, B, he called me B. He said, B, you did a really good job of not making friends. And so when it came time to vote, I did not, not only didn't I win it, I think I came in third. I mean, I had an unbelievable season. And there's no question in my mind that I should have been the most valuable player that year. There's no question about it. And if it had been like it had been normally, most years when they had that stupid experiment of doing it with the players and the press voted it, 
that year I was the only unanimous choice for the first team. Mm. So yeah, it cost me, but you know what? What difference does it make? We won the freaking championship. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. all that really matters. That would have been just another little adornment on my cape. I got you, 100%. Yeah, well well said. In that same conversation with Courtside Jones, you mentioned how you were in discussions with the then coach of the Lakers, Del Harris, uh, offering Shaquille O'Neal some help with his free throw shooting woes and possibly trying to get him to consider the underhanded method. Now, I guess if there's ever going to be a hard sell in terms of trying to convince somebody that a, a shooting method might benefit them, I guess Shaquille O'Neal is probably right at the top of the pack there. Uh, for sure. I mean, Shaq... Jack didn't want to do it, obviously. In fact, well, you saw the comment that he made, the ludicrous comment he made in the feature that they did in my free throw shooting that just came out recently, which I think just made him look so foolish and so petty. Agreed. You know, to say that I haven't accomplished anything, that I couldn't get a job if I went to, I mean, that is insane what he said. And then to make a statement that he'd rather shoot minus 30 than shoot underhanded free throws. Where do you show that you have a caring for your team and trying to get better so you can help your team. I mean, isn't that insane? I mean, anyway, I was very disappointed when I heard about that from Shaq, who was, you know, Shaq's a great guy doing stuff, but he just got so caught up in this free throw thing, he took it so personal, I was just trying to be helpful. And he, and he, so he got very ugly and negative about it. And I think he made himself look foolish because wouldn't anybody as a professional try anything in anything, as long as it's not illegal, to get better so that you can perform better and you can help your team or your organization if you're in business or something? Wouldn't you do that? Doesn't that just make sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense to most people. And yeah, it's quite unusual that it uh, he wouldn't try and take on some uh, offers for help from obviously legends of the game who have been fantastic uh, shooters and know the, the best way to get the best out of themselves. So yeah, it's quite staggering. It's all ancient history anyway. It doesn't matter. Shaq does a lot of great things for a lot of causes. He's a good person. And that was just an unfortunate thing that happened. And again, it's in the past. Can't worry about it. I mean, I've, I got way more important things to be concerned with than worrying about what happened in my life years ago. Indeed. Now, I know that you're a keen fisherman, as you've mentioned, and you've talked about uh, going up on trips to Alaska and whatnot. Do you mind talking more about how you first got into the fishing side of things and then some of your other interests and pursuits? I know for one that you're uh, a director as well of the NBRPA, which uh, I mentioned on my previous podcast episode that this show now has a link to that association. So just talk about some of your interests these days, please, Rick. Well, I got into the, the the fly fishing. I had done it once before, many, many, many years ago. And if any, somebody had said to me, you know, seven years ago, hey, you know, Rick, you're going to probably become a really avid fisherman. I would have said, what do you want, drugs? <laughs> <laughs> me? <laughs> but fly fishing is so different than just fishing and sitting there with a rod and a reel in your hand and hoping a fish bites it. It's a skill. It's a technique. And the better you get at it, the more opportunities you have to hook into fish. And I just absolutely love it. And my good friend Scott Minnick, who lives here, who's done it for 35 years or so, got me to go out with him. And I, I, I kept going with him. I said, wow, this really is cool. And I just, pardon the pun, but I got hooked on it. Yeah. And so I started doing it. And I've been doing it now for almost you know, seven years, I think. And I absolutely love it. And going to Alaska, the last frontier it truly is i mean i'm fishing and i've got bears floating 20 feet by on a river right next to me walking over here and it's so surreal it's so incredibly beautiful and the fishing is to die for 
I went out one day at the one lodge. I go to a couple of different places up there, Rainbow River Lodge, which is just absolutely out of this world for fly-out place, and then another one for salt and fresh water at the Boardwalk Lodge. And Brad Stewart, the owner of Boardwalk, and, and Chad Hewitt, the owner of the other place, have become friends of mine, and I just go up there every year. And I went out at Rainbow and a fly-out, and it was just the one guide and me in a small little blow-up little raft with a little small motor on it. And, and I was hooking like 100 fish a day. Wow. And so I said, you know what, it's going out with other people. I said, you know what, let, let's, i got to get another 100 here. This, I'm going to set some kind of record for myself. He said, oh, yeah, no problem. So we go out. I got 100 so fast. So I said to the guide, I said, look, I think we can get 200. He said, I think we can too. Let's go for it. <laughs> I work so freaking hard, and we're going, no, Rick, come on, that's enough here, let's go, I'm taking to another spot, let's go, bring that in, take that fly, I'm going to take that fly off, we got, I mean, so he worked with me, and we had a blast, and I worked, I'm, I'm working fishing both sides of the river, walking down the middle, he's taking the boat and walking in behind me, and it was just amazing, I hooked 224 fish that day, <laughs> so spectacular, it was so, I was exhausted, but it was just an amazing, amazing day. And the scenery is great. Ray Floyd, the Hall of Fame pro golfer, is a buddy of mine. I've known him for years. And Ray fishes. And I finally got a chance to fish with him. Got him up there. He had never fished for rainbow trout before. He had a great time. We caught all kinds of salmon and whatever. Raymond's going with me again this year. And it's just a great, uh, great experience. And I put trips together for individuals and for, for companies. And people can go to rickberry24.com rickberry24.com all small letters for Rick Barry and they can see the different places to go Mexico and up there and somebody can you know wants to join me they can have an opportunity to do that it's uh, it's just really fun and then Mexico is another experience my friend Gary Wagner has a little mini resort and the fishing there is spectacular I don't do most I don't do fly fishing down there although I just learned that I can because I just found out that last year a lady caught a world record rooster fish on a fly rod. So I'm going to have to do some fly fishing next time I go down to visit Gary at the Rancho de Costa. One last thing I'm going to throw in there. I have to put a plug in because the greatest basketball shoe ever is called Ectio, E-K-T-I-O. There's never been a shoe with patented technology that actually can help prevent ankle sprains. E-K-T-I-O.com. Check it out. If I was playing today, for sure I'd be wearing it. My youngest son wore it in high school and, and I really believe from what the doctor and everything said that had he not had it on, he might have broken his ankle. It's a great, great shoe and reasonably priced. Read the reviews, read the testimonials, and why guys aren't wearing this shoe. Well, I know why, because they're not getting paid. That's why <laughs> they're getting money, I mean, instead of protecting themselves. But this is the only shoe that could actually help prevent ankle sprains. So, and if anybody goes to the website and orders, they put Rick Barry 24 in there and uh, small letters, Rick Barry 24, and they'll get a discount. All right, well, no worries. I'll definitely include that information. There's many different topics we've touched on today that I'll include in the show notes to this episode, links to your website and some of the other things that we've been talking about throughout the conversation. So, Rick, it's just been a pleasure chatting with you and thanks very much for affording me this amount of time and uh, all the best in the future. Same to you and uh, good day, mate. <laughs> thanks again, Rick. I learnt plenty more about your career, the MBA and even the ABA whilst researching for our conversation. I encourage you to interact with the show. You can suggest topics for future episodes or guests that you'd like to hear conversations with. I welcome your voicemail comments or questions on my website or Facebook page. Worldwide on iTunes, the show currently has 35 reviews and now 39 five-star ratings. And on Stitcher, there are two reviews and two five-star ratings. So thanks again for your great support of the podcast. If you add a review, I'd love to mention your name in a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are like a Calvin Murphy, Dribble Drive and Dish, the ultimate assist. It helps me to reach a wider podcast audience and in turn that gives you, the listener, more opportunity to hear conversations with great guests. 
You can subscribe to my show in various ways in allandis.com slash iTunes. Alternatively, add it to your Stitcher playlist in allandis.com slash Stitcher. My RSS feed appears in the right-hand sidebar of my website, or if you're on a smartphone or a tablet, scroll down to the bottom of the page and you'll see all those details there. You can subscribe to the show on Player FM and many other podcatchers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allanis.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallanis. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallanis. Join me next time for another edition of the show.